Hello and welcome to the Centric Cities podcast from the Centric Lab. Some of this material will be familiar with listeners to the Conscious Cities podcast, where it was previously hosted. However, we decided to bring things in-house to further our intended direction. Centric are all about enhancing user experience in the built environment. One of our main things is mapping out ecosystems and looking for friction and tension points. Well, that's what this podcast aims to explore by interviewing professionals working at the coalface of the businesses that are helping to design, build, manage, and dream of the cities of tomorrow. My name is Josh, and I'll be your host. Episode 6 was originally recorded in September 2017, where I had the great opportunity to sit down with PropTech CEO and founder Savannah DeSavery of Built ID. Built ID is bringing word of mouth insight into the digital age. It's an online platform and professional community that connects real estate developers with consultants. They've documented on their platform over 26,000 projects by nearly 1,000 member companies, so they're becoming very popular. Their aim is to help you discover the people behind your favorite projects and bring a word-of-mouth referral system into the digital age. One of the great things I really like about Built ID is the transparency it provides in quite a hidden and cloaked industry. It can give new opportunities to people who haven't been part of an existing scene. It's helping remove a bit of favoritism and nepotism that sometimes blights the industry. But most importantly, it's helping great talent be exposed to people seeking great ideas. In this podcast, we don't really go on about the company too much, but we ask Savannah more about what it is to be an entrepreneur in a progressive technology-related company and some of her views about the built environment in general. I was wondering whether you could give a bit of an introduction to yourself and how you got to where you are at Built ID. Sure. So my name is Savannah DeSavry and I am the founder and CEO of Built ID, which is a prop tech startup that acts as a matchmaker between anyone doing a real estate project, be it a hotelier, restaurateur, property developer, you know, someone just doing their office headquarters. And on the other side, um, the consultants who are the right fit for their project, from the architects and engineers to lighting designers, vertical transportation consultants, you name it. Um, so we're trying to save um, time and money by making it easier to discover um, projects that inspire you and who's behind them. Excellent. I mean, you're not just London-based at the moment, you're international, aren't you? Yes, yeah, so we, um, the beauty of, of, I think, of the platform is that it's all user-generated content, um, so that um, consultants have actually, even though we focused on London, they've added projects in, I think, it's now 142 countries, um, although one of my team said earlier it's 146, so around, around that number, more countries than I've visited, essentially. <laughs> Excellent. But a lot of your experience in, that led you to this was spending time in New York, wasn't it? Yeah, absolutely. Um, I think a lot of the problems that we see and the pain points in the London market are experienced across the world. Um, and I personally you know, saw my team experiencing them and experienced them myself in New York City in property development, where, you know, just... It's all about who you know is what you know, and it's so time-consuming to find out, you know, who was the original structural engineer on a building that you've just bought because you want those original drawings. You're going to have to call around your network to find out. Um, so we're not really disrupting. We're not doing anything, um, you know, hugely new. We're just making it easier and bringing the methods that have already been done, word of mouth, into the digital age. I, I find it fascinating when you start to unravel 
the built environment industry, and even if we just pick the real estate industry within that, that the more you dig, the, the deeper that, that rabbit hole gets. Mm. And yet this is an industry that drives and dictates so much of our lives. You know, our town centres, the culture of a city is often embodied in the architecture. And the architecture is developed through financial models and programmes that allow things mm. to happen. And yet it's very messy. It, it's it's all over the place. And the interesting thing about Build ID is just, it's almost so obvious, like, yes, of course, I should be able to know, to find, to inspire yeah. and to connect. I mean, just delving into your brain and your opinion, how do you think such a mess came about and it's so uncontrolled, even though there are tons and tons of regulatory bodies? Um, I think it's because so many different players and so many different roles go into um, creating the built environment, maintaining it and, you know, evolving it. Everyone works in silos. And I think Dan Hughes is someone who's, you know, written a lot of great stuff about this. And I completely agree with him that um, people don't communicate enough and they haven't necessarily had to, to make a nice fat profit. And so there's been no need to make it less messy. Um, I think if you, if you don't, you know, don't see evidence of a better, more streamlined way to work, which in the past, you know, they haven't seen enough, you don't feel the need to sort it out. Whilst we're now at this stage where people are starting to say, okay, I can save a lot of time and money by communicating better, collaborating more. Um, and that's why it's starting slowly to improve. But yeah, there's, there's so many different facets of what goes into making a project work. That's interesting because I'm going to spin it kind of two ways. So a lot of deals in real estate are, are done in secrecy because mm -hmm. arguably if someone hears about it they might be able to work finance a slightly bit differently might be able to jump in and sort of take that deal is perhaps the desire to be more open and uh, communicable in their existing data and their conversations they'll have with other people perhaps down to actually the amount of work available that actually people are a little bit more open because they're not having to be so secretive and guarded that there's actually more opportunities out there Maybe that's an, that's an interesting way of thinking about it. The answer is I'm not sure. I think, I think definitely a factor is that you've had companies like CompStack come along in the US and I think, you know, to an extent CoStar where sharing data has real positive results for your company. Can you tell me a little bit more um, about CompStack and some of your sort of views or perhaps experience in, in looking into the product? Sure. So that's a product where the more you put in, um, the more essentially you can get out. And there's a lot of people that say that's hilarious that this is an industry where you know you pay to get out data essentially that you've helped put in there but I think the bigger picture is that sharing your data and what you're doing means you know you get a more holistic picture of the whole industry um, that you only have a partial picture and you think you're you know going to have the edge of the data you have but really the hard part should not be getting the data you need to make a decision all of your time and brain power should be you know, focused on making the best decision. And if you're the smartest, best people in the industry, you'll still have an edge. You don't need it to be because no one else had access to the information needed. Um, but I think that's a, that's a different mindset to what we've seen traditionally. I think it's just an old-fashioned industry. Um, to an extent, it's an old boys club. Um, and that's why we've, we've seen such secrecy. Yeah. I mean, prop tech is a term. I mean, it's so loose. Um, I mean, we've had conversations offline. I'm sure you've had your own conversations offline with this notion of uh, prop tech almost encompassing too much. And within that, I mean, you, you, you touched upon it there, how it is an old boys industry, but naturally every cycle, every evolution of every industry, uh, people do move away, new ideas come through. So uh, let, let's, ask, let's ask this in kind of two formats. Do you feel that 
there is a shift happening in the industry where even those coming through the traditional schools of education in property, you know, those going to the universities of Oxford Brookes and Reading and LSE and studying land and economics, for example, um, it's getting their RICS, it's the Royal Institution of Charter Surveyors, for those that aren't aware of the little acronym, that uh, they are coming around, they are realising their role is more diverse. Or are we not seeing enough mental sort of change in those people? And that's where kind of prop tech, this huge term is kind of jarring. Do you, do you think we're, the people are iterating themselves or they're really having to try and understand and get along with prop tech for as long as they can? So I think firstly, in, in, in relation to the term prop tech, I think that it is very wide. It encompasses a lot. You know, it comes to everything from, you know, a smart home system um, you know, that's controlling your heating to, um, you know, systems that are controlling, you know, the, the, the asset management of a huge portfolio, you know, billion dollar portfolio. I mean, these are very different technologies. I think what matters is that you understand PropTech to mean any technology that is impacting the real estate industry. You know, it doesn't have to mean anything specific. It just has to mean that this is something that's going to impact us in our industry. Um, and so when you look at it that way, I think in terms of how much are the old school, you know, traditional players in the industry coming around to it, I think it's slowly but surely, you know, you're seeing companies like JLL um, start to venture into investing in prop tech companies and setting up separate vehicles to identify um, what are good investments. Um, you have places like um, CBRE and um, Savills appointing people um, to focus on innovation and to make sure that they know the trends, they can advise their clients on what trends are out there. But I think a lot of that, the more I talk to you know people in those positions, a lot of the motivation for it is not so much from within the industry, it's more their clients expect them to know what the latest trends are, what's going to disrupt their businesses, what's disrupting the built environment industry. Um, and so they're having to change. I don't think it's that people want to change. I think it's that um, it's a necessary evil in their eyes. This is, this is a thought that I've, I've been running with for a little while and it'd be good to kind of get your view on it that real estate in its way is kind of one of those last products, uh, those assets mm. as such that we as people use to, to fulfill whatever tasks that we have and technology completely changed that relationship and that value that we have with it and as a result the, almost the, the customer that uses this product has changed. And we've seen that in, in phones, in cars, mm -hmm. even in homes, which is arguably more progressive than the traditional commercial sort of real estate market, that it is the customer is now changing the demand of the supply chain and what they need to offer. So that there is a huge empathy shift. Oh yeah, definitely. And I think it's um I think it's Anthony Slumbers who said a phrase I absolutely love, which is landlords are having to shift from being a rent collector to a service provider. And you need to provide both the hardware and the software. And I think this is absolutely true um, for offices, office as an experience. And, you know, when I moved back to London um, in June, around maybe between April and June 2016, I'd come from New York where WeWork was huge. And I'd go into meetings and they'd be a name that I'd drop. And people would be like, yeah, I don't know what that is. And I'm like, I just, it was beyond my, my um, understanding that you couldn't know WeWork in this huge movement now everyone knows we work and how much there's this new um, model of working and of what you have to provide in order to um, be successful in, um, in providing a workplace. And I think we've seen it already in retail where, um, you know, the, the sort of competition from online shopping means that you retail experience 
in uh, you know in, in the bricks and mortar genuinely has to be an experience i was reading the other day about you know shops in the u.s where you can go in and you're invited to bring your bathing suit and try the thousand pound shower head um or i think it was um one of the huge department stores over there recently opened a store where they stock no clothes in advance you order your clothes for an app online to try and then you go there and you have cocktails and probably you know get drunk and decide to keep them all and you have a manicure and whatever else it is it's all about an experience and i think that the demand from the consumer from the tenant um and the tenants you know own clients in term is really really a huge shift in the industry and one that will only continue to see this trend i think we're literally just at the beginning of you know having to become service providers and with that it's such a different mental shift it's also a slightly different financial shift as well mm. and something that has been uh, discussed before or is starting to get discussed more and more is actually you know the the financial mechanics behind a lot of the real estate industry is leveraged through debt it's it's traditional mm. real estate lenders of the banks and their departments and they're basing everything off Here's, here's, here's a product we can wrap up in a 20-year bond, effectively, mm-hmm. if the lease is returning what it is. And it's different now. It's changing. The, the, what people are demanding from their space, that level of service and experience, is very unfamiliar with an old-school sort of financial mindset. Uh, what, I mean, you, you, you deal with a lot of sort of senior people in, in the market. You've got a great uh, sort of vertical experience as well as very lateral understanding of the market as well. That, you know, are you seeing at all any shifts in the change of type of investor that might be coming through? Who might be looking at these opportunities in major cities, in new buildings, new desires based around experience more as this business to run, where they are engaged, where they are actively going, I'm thinking tech first in how I can provide a better solution rather than thinking, where can I just put my money? Yeah, absolutely. I was um, co-chairing a panel for EG the other week and on the panel was a fund and I want to say it's M3 Consulting. I've probably got that wrong. And, you know, the um, the head of it who was on the panel said that it developed, you know, out of the ashes of 2008 crisis um, and they very much put technology first and that's how it's an integral part of what they do they don't understand the concept of prop tech because for them it's just part of being a successful business in the property industry and they have a portfolio you know international in many different markets and it's a core part of what they do and they make investments in other prop tech companies which can you know assist with what they're doing so absolutely I think we're seeing a change in that we're seeing a change in how you can invest in property you know of like brick invest in companies like that which um i don't really understand the mechanics of what they're doing but i can <laughs> definitely understand um how big an impact they're going to have and i think you know that's reflected in a lot of senior people in the industry sharing my thought of i don't need to understand the tech i just need to understand that i need to i need to get on board of this i mean with the view that perhaps new people are coming into the market and adopting it um, one of the big issues that often the real estate industry or the built environment industry, if we include things like construction and mm. associated, has a very poor end user communication to decision maker. If there's a new market coming in, if there's a new shape of investor, uh, whether they be someone like a social impact investor, whether they be looking at this more as an operational business type of investor, how do you think there are any good ways to start communicating sentiment to these people? I mean, and I say these people in the nicest term, it's, uh, you know, are there different types of representative bodies or are there different tools or technologies you think that people, citizens, you or me should be looking at how to inform 
people and decision makers a little bit better. Yeah, absolutely. I don't. I think it's um, the big Broadgate and um, construction site. Um, they have an app, and I think it's British Land. Yeah. Um, and it's fantastic. I downloaded it, even though I have nothing to do with that area. Never even go there because it's just fascinating to see how much they're trying to engage their audience and make sure that they're in on the process. And I don't think this is just um, something that's being driven by the private side. Um, we're collaborating with Westminster, Southwark and the City of London. And something that came across very strongly in our meetings with them is that they want their local community to be able to engage better with the environment around them. They want them to be able to see what has planning approval, what's going to be coming out of the ground. And, you know, is there a way that Built ID can assist them, even though it's you know meant for a B2B audience? Um People, people are conscious of this and they, they want to they improve it. So I think we'll see more and more interesting startups addressing it. That's amazing. That's actually some nice good news to hear. Mm. Uh, I wanted to sort of break apart. We're starting to get to the idea of um, you know, technology in the city in general and how people can get a wider view on what they're looking at. Naturally, when you talk about technology in cities, you get that wonderful term of smart cities. Mm-hmm. And I mean, th- this is kind of the, the point of conscious cities. It was... Um, it, it's been long discussed, like, great, we've got this technology, but what's our aim? Now, I can sit here and go on for too long about what I think a smart city is. Yeah. I'd love to get your opinion on it. And, you know, you're, you're in safe territory here. Uh, feel free to, to let yourself loose on what you think, you know, really what we're trying to do with smart cities. Yeah. So I think when we, and when I say we, I mean we in the, you know, Western world think about a smart city we think about a digitally collaborative ecosystem that will improve you know the economic um, social and the environmental sustainability of that city we think of tech primarily Um, which is kind of ironic because on tech alone I think it's Taipei which is the smartest city of 2017 Um, but so much more goes into it Um, I read really, really interesting article. I think, I don't think it was too recent, but I stumbled across it from India Times talking about how they're really pushing a smart cities initiative. And a lot of things that they identified as, as crucial to a smart, that make a smart city were nothing to do with technology or um, connectivity. It was, you know, affordable housing, um, adequate water supply, safety and security of citizens, particularly women, children and the elderly. Um, sanitation. Alongside this um, was things like, you know, robust IT connectivity and digitization, sustainable environment, um, good governance. I think this is something, you know, globally that a smart city has to have. Its governance is a key parameter, Um, you know, urban mobility and public transport. Um, But I think it's just really important we remember the fundamentals that have to go into making a smart city. It's not all about, um, you know, collecting as much data as possible because, more often than not you don't know what to do with it um and i mean it's very impressive that you have places like dubai which are pushing to i think um you know their smart city agenda aggressively um and i think that's fantastic but that's not what we should think about when we think about smart cities we should yeah focus on the fundamentals i mean it's almost like the desire and the the gold rush to data that it's like oh okay now what we need Mm. to do is focus on data whereas i mean everything you mentioned there is just general human common sense these are almost very humane factors there's almost this psychological break that um we have to have the data to make the decision, whereas actually you need a level of empathy to make the decision. Yeah, I completely agree. And I think that's that's one of the reasons why I find what you're doing is so fascinating and so useful and, and important because there's there's so much more to it and there's so much, you know, the mentality of a smart city 
is, you know, in some ways a completely different but inherently intertwined thing with the physical infrastructure you put in place um, and the technology you layer into that. And both have to go hand in hand, I think, to have a truly smart city. So in New York, what makes them, you know, one of the smartest cities in the world is that they have, you know, they're installing more high-speed free internet than anywhere else. And, you know, 100 air pollutant monitors are there. But also they have things like the New York City Housing Authority has a mobile app for public housing residents to manage their housing services um, and to have better access to it and to be able to communicate better with their police. Things like that, which are enabled by technology, but at their heart, the technology isn't what makes it smart. It's the fact that they're focusing on improving um, communication and safety in the city. Uh, yeah, everything I read and hear, it all seems that stems from uh, the former mayor Bloomberg just setting out the vision mm. and having the willpower and the finances to to execute in a lot of his legacy work. Things like uh, engaging and helping, uh, I think it was uh, Dan Doktoroff, who's now behind Cyborg Labs, and the sort of alphabet Google mm. sub-company he used to work for him. Um, a lot of the legacy projects were started off by Bloomberg. But I'll, I'll delve into this now because you've obviously got experience both here in London and in New York. Mm-hmm. And whenever I look at New York, I, I, you know, what was one of those old adages or here, you know, the phrase I always hear from whether it be from a music or a piece of art, it's the five boroughs. Mm. And you know, and Manhattan in its economic power, let alone its population density, let alone its mixture of um, cultures around itself, is so strong, but yet it's consolidated under almost one sort of major borough authority. Now, if we flip that to somewhere like London, where we've got 32 boroughs, and within them, there are all forms of sort of parish councils where planning applications are done. Now, that here, here to me is screaming something that's very obvious about um, how to make cities more progressive, how we think about them. Do you feel that New York really benefits from a that policy point of view and whether cities like London need to start consolidating on these decisions? Um, so certainly when you're when you're developing in New York, the borough isn't the only level you're in. So, you know, if you're developing on the Upper East Side, you're going to go within a sub-borough and then you may be within a landmark district and there's different... The map for figuring out what you can do in planning for New York is mind-boggling. Um, and there's actually some cool tech platforms that help you navigate it, but certainly the sort of local level... Um, policy is very much there. So I don't know if they're ahead of us in that sense. And do you um, find they, they contradict each other? So, you know, one end of one avenue con- uh, contradicts to another, you know, three blocks away when in their, in their sub-borough category. Yeah, absolutely. And sometimes you have, but, you know, normally I think there's purpose behind it. You know, in Brooklyn, sometimes you'll have, they're trying to build up one area and so you can go higher there. And then two streets behind, they're trying to cultivate still residential feel and they don't want that. And so you can only build up to three stories or whatever it may be. Um, there's definitely um, logic behind it. And I sadly couldn't compare the two because I've only ever had to deal with planning in New York Um, so zoning there is all I'm really familiar with but certainly it's not this is Manhattan you know it's the same everywhere Um, they care a lot about keeping the 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 culture and the and the history and um, the identity of the different areas within it Um, and they've also been incredibly successful in shaping a new identity meatpacking is a perfect example um, of an area that has completely transformed in the last couple of decades Um, thanks to, you know, clever, clever development. And I think often developers get a bad rap, but that's an example of a place that, um, you know, has really transformed for the better. I think something that's interesting about developers uh, in themselves is they're often doing what's there in front of them. 
and I, I think we have to look more at the ecosystem in a more intelligent way to guide what they could do because arguably it's actually a very clever job I mean it's about being a film producer um, you see it's no different to aligning up the pieces of the puzzle, making sure the finance moves in the mm. correct period of time, making sure, you know, if your director is your architect, you're still piecing things together. And it's not really, you know, we don't give George Lucas a bad rap about the production. Well, maybe on some of his stuff. But it, it, it's it's often because we're so physically related and embodied by it that they, they do get a hard rap. And I think that's that's what I mean by looking at policy. That's what I mean by looking at communication platforms. Like, how do we guide people better? Yeah. Like. I do hear you, however, there's, I don't think any, any sort of um, developer in the private sector would deny that they are very much motivated by the bottom line. You know, if that DCF analysis works, then that's going to be the primary driver. And, you know, you do have, um, you know, affordable housing. I don't want to get started on it. Uh, I think you could, you could sit here for months on that, and I don't think I'm actually best placed to, you know, know the most about it, to discuss it. But... I can see why developers get a bad rap. They don't always deserve it. Um, most of the time, they don't deserve it. But certainly, um, you know, we're not we're not just doing it for the greater good. No, and so I think business. so. I think that should be that should be kept in mind that you know it's the same as why some if we go to the analogy to the film industry, some developers have a bad rap because they clearly just make movies that they know are going to be sentimental blockbuster hits, and they make hundreds of millions through it. But actually, you know, the, the, the sort of, which I'm not one of them, I, I love a blockbuster hit. Um, but there's some people who then judge them because they prefer the art house directors that are doing something that truly makes a difference and, you know, affects the people who see it and improves their lives by, by having this experience. And it's very rare that you get like a moonlight which combines the two. Um, and I think that that can also be applied to property developers. You get some people, some companies that are truly trying to... Um, shape shape an area and have that authenticity and and you know um create something special for the community there i mean i think derwent does a great job of that of trying to keep the fabric of the local culture intact um and i think there's some some developers that don't so yeah no it's good i always like trying to determine i mean the ethics of a property developer mm. is, is such an interesting oxymoron in, in its own right but no it, it's business people do need to be paid people need to eat they need to get on with what they do um i think there's just better communication channels is, is always where i try to drive the questions where i try to drive where can these opportunities come um yeah. I, I'm, I'm and you're, you're right and people pe developers want that i think mm. that i think local communities often don't understand how much developers want to improve that dialogue um, I think you and I in particular is an example of a developer who wants to collaborate with the local community. They genuinely want that input and to make sure that they're creating um, a space that, that you know, the local community values and, and you know, contributes to it. Um, and we don't hear enough about that. We hear too much about you know, the bad developers who aren't wanting to do that rather than the really great ones. And there's far more of those than the, than the ones who are only motivated by self-interest. So it's the media, it's the culture of the media. The media. Uh, <laughs> I do like following uh, different Twitter accounts and Instagram accounts about good news because it's always nice to hear about the good news rather than <laughs> flipping on the radio and going, eight people have died. I'm like, that's not news. That's there's focus because people are doing good work out there people are questioning but let's try and encourage that now let, let, let's flip ethics and morals to the side I know and I because I went to a talk you did once um, you are a big fan of drones I'm a huge fan of drones <laughs> uh, it, it, are they perhaps the most interesting piece of realistic technology and hardware that's coming into the built environment industry that you're seeing at the moment 
probably not the most realistic because I think um, the true, true, you know, value in them is dictated by regulation. And right now it's not there. So, you know, in the long term, drones can be hugely important in monitoring construction sites, you know, the volumetric measurements, um, how, how construction is progressing, you know, powering that in to compare the BIM model to make sure that everything's on track and catch mistakes earlier. All of that sort of autonomy, 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 autonomy of drones that needs to happen for that to happen, for that to even work. Um, the, re- the regulation isn't there yet. So I think when it comes to realistic, um, impactful technology, the biggest one for me in contact, which is something you know I'm, I'm really keen on, is probably 3D printing. And by that, I don't mean the wind sun, you know, 3D printed houses that they did in 24 hours or, you know, the office building they did with Gensler, which is incredibly cool. Um, and I don't know if it's still on, but I know earlier in the year they signed some contract, like £1.5 billion contract with um, Saudi Arabia to supply 3D printers for them. Um, that's really cool. But what I'm more interested in is the 3D building components, sorry, 3D printed building components. Um, so I'm talking, you know, the highly customizable joints, the Arup, for example, have used 3D printing to fabricate steel nodes for lightweight structures. I mean, the difference this can make in productivity gains, reduced labor costs, improved quality control is huge. Um, and I think that for me is, is something that you can really see a tangible difference as soon as you start to use it, um, which for property developers is, is important for them to want to adopt tech. If you have to wait a couple of years to start to see your investment pay off, it's a harder sell. It's interesting now that, I mean, you sort of say that I, I can see it on site. Would you say that it perhaps might lead to more aesthetically interesting and better fitting uh, designs perhaps on the street, you know, their facades of buildings and street styles, not too over the top architectural designs, but something that's more characterful, something that has a better embodiment of ideas and culture within it? Absolutely, not because it can necessarily, you know, do something easier that's more sophisticated, but rather that you don't have the need to simplify the design in a later stage to lower costs. That is why you'll be able to get more sophisticated designs emerging if you're 3D printing components, is because you don't have to do the um, the value engineering as much later. And I think that's really important. And also, it's just the way it can have an impact um, on innovation. You know, there's something called cool bricks, I think it is, which is these porous bricks that they 3D print which somehow try to get water molecules when it's coming through and it then cools the interior of the house so it's hugely important for sustainability and for um, also you know general quality of, of being inside these buildings um, that sort of change you can't really notice visually but it should have a great impact in the long term on your on your sort of enjoyment of the building. And that's awesome. So how early stage is that at the moment? Is that progressing? Or um, is... It's something called Design Studio Emerging Objects. Um, and I think they've already developed them. I, 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 I could be wrong, but I think it's already developed and, you know, go, go check them out. So really it's now about it saturating within the market to have an effect? As a... Absolutely, absolutely. You know, 3D printing was first developed in the 80s. Um, but it was just a difficult and expensive operation, so it had a few applications, whilst now um, it's, it's starting to become mainstream, which yeah. is great to see. And so, so we've gone through the realistic options mm-hmm. of, of what's coming through. Now, this is where normally people drop their sort of uh, their blockchain klaxon of what is the, you know, if, if you had to look at the real estate industry and the built environment industry and you step back and then you look at all the other industries uh, that technology has been impacting would you say there is a, there's something that you're going if only people were looking at 
X technology with Y aspect, if we were missing something, I mean, what, what's the thing that you sort of think, you know what, today it's nowhere near ready, but in 10 years time, even five years time, we are going to regret not having thought about this harder, that we're going to regret not going, I really should have paid attention a lot more to that because all those new guys coming in, mm-hmm. they were thinking about that first and we haven't been preparing for it. So the obvious one is, as you said, it's blockchain, but actually I think the bigger one will be collaborating sharing your data, working together, um, being an early adopter, because that is what in five to 10 years time, incumbent players are going to say, damn, you know, CBRE, and not, not CBRE, I actually think a great example of doing it, but you know, <laughs> the CBREs of the world, companies of that scale, suddenly they're finding they're competing with Google. Or I don't think that's even 10 years away. I think that's a, a few years away. Mm. Um, and saying, if only we collaborated and we combined um, our intelligence and our data and our, our capabilities to to help stay the incumbents and stay ahead of the curve, um, we'd be in a better position today. And I think that some people are doing it, and that's why CBRE sprung to my mind, because I think they're trying to. Um, but I think there's a lot of existing players who are just not ready to stop working in silos, to start to see the benefits of communicating across the life cycle of an asset. Um, because there'll be new players who do think to do that, and they will be able to build far more efficiently, far faster, and with far better um, returns. And globally, are there any particular markets that you think are, are, are going to become very interesting spots, whether it be Asia or South America, Africa, and within that, if there's anything quite novel you think is going to come within them? So for me, I think for Built ID in particular, India is a really interesting market. I think oh. it's opening up increasingly to more foreign investment. Um, and that's where for us, there's a huge opportunity for you to support the local economy by knowing who you should collaborate with. And we hear this a lot from big international, you know, FTSE 100 companies that are um, developing offices in these markets. They say, we want to support them. We want to have an authentic office and, and be part of this community. But we just don't know who to work with, who to trust. Um, so for me, it's India is a really interesting market. I think for tech more widely in the built environment, I think the Gulf is completely ahead of the curve. Um, they're very keen to be innovative, to be on the cutting edge. And that's the, that's the market to watch from that perspective. Excellent. I, I just wanted to ask one question. It's, it's something that comes around in, in the public a lot. Um, it would be good to get your view on what it is to look at such a male-dominated industry mm-hmm. and be gunning forward as you do as, a, as, as an entrepreneur as you are. Like, what are the sort of heuristics that other people listening might look at the real estate industry and go, it is just a bunch of fat old white men sitting around. And, <laughs> ha, ha, you know, do I even bother in knocking on the door? Because I feel very ill when I sit on a panel or I go to a meeting and it's span, it's stale, pale and male. And certainly <laughs> I am one of them. I am a white man that just sits there on a panel. And I think this, this isn't correct because this isn't a holistic mentality about how we build something that caters to everybody. Um, I can I completely agree and I think the big challenge is is that when you see this and when you know we hear so much about the challenges of being you know a woman or you know or, or a minority in this industry it discourages people from joining so the only thing that I feel really passionate about on the subject is changing the dialogue making it about how incredible it is to be um, someone who's more diverse in this industry um, I don't think the incumbents you know the like you said the the, the old white men um, want to keep it that way. 
I think it's just up to up to us to to to, to forge ahead and to give them an opportunity to give us a chance. Um, it's worth noting that it may be challenging now to be a woman in in the industry in the UK, but it was a hell of a lot harder for our parents' generation, and it's still much harder in other markets. I mean, yay, finally women can drive in Saudi Arabia, but you know, um, in a lot of in a lot of places like that, you wouldn't even get a foot in the door, never mind in that boardroom. And I think, um, yeah, we need to encourage more diversity. Um, there's very few female founders in tech. Um, there's even fewer um, female founders of colour in tech. Um, and the same goes in property. And I think um, they don't feel welcome in the industry. They don't feel like it's an industry that's going to, um, you know, want them to succeed. And we need to make sure that that image changes. And that's something I feel really strongly about. I don't want to be known as a female entrepreneur. I just want to be known as an entrepreneur. Mm-hmm. Um, but I'm willing to bite the bullet and, and be, you know, a token, a token lady um, in the public sphere if that's going to encourage other women to come and, and join me. Um, I think that's that's something I feel strongly about. Excellent. Uh, on that very prophetic uh, note, uh, Savannah, thank you very much for your time to come to see this podcast. No, thank you for having me. So thanks very much for Savannah for her time. Um, I'm sure you can find her on all the necessary channels from Twitter to their own website, which is built-id.com. Um, so thanks again for listening. We are on iTunes, so please do leave a review if you can. Hopefully it'll be a nice and positive one. Do get in contact with us via podcast at thecentriclab.com. On the website, you'll also find a newsletter you can sign up to. And obviously we are available via Twitter, which is at thecentriclab. So hopefully speak to you guys soon. Bye.